In Bryson City, North Carolina, there is a road to nowhere. It was built in 1941 next to a large hydroelectric dam, and the idea was that a community would be built that was powered by the electricity provided by the dam. The people there would work there, and it would be a nice little uh, community built around uh, that road. Well, they built the road, they even built a tunnel through a, a large hillside. But actually, the community there never got built. There's just a road now to nowhere. Well, the Galatians Paul is writing to in this letter that we had read before, uh, they have been faced with a, a situation where they've been going down a road to nowhere. They certainly faced a, a fork in the road, and they've got two different paths ahead of them, and they're being pushed in the direction of one that goes to nothing. Paul, so far in his letter, has put it starkly and bluntly. There are two paths, two roads open to them. Obedience to the Old Testament law and faith in Christ. He's very, very clear that they're not the same path, says Paul. They're two very different roads. False teachers have come to Galatia claiming to have the true gospel, the true path. But Paul is clear that that is no gospel at all. And Paul, throughout the letters, invites us to compare these two gospels, these two paths. Last time we saw that the road of the law led to damnation, led to destruction. Whereas the road of faith led to glory and eternal life. But we're left with a blatantly obvious question then. If that's the two roads and, and they're both there, why did God build the law? Why did we build that road there? Why did God give a law that couldn't save people, only damn them, take them to nowhere if you like? Isn't that kind of working against his plan to save people? Now, how is that working towards God's aims? Why build a road that leads in the wrong direction? But Paul here answers that question for us. Paul is insistent the law does have a purpose. It's just not what you've been using it for. You've been trying to treat the, the, the law as a road to heaven when it was never really supposed to be used as that. It was never supposed to bring life. It's not that God thought that it would and then he made a mistake and it just didn't work out. The law, as we saw last week, came with a warning that those who followed it and couldn't keep it were under a curse. Because you had to keep all the law. And not just keep it, but do it, actually act it out. All of it. And anybody here who's tried seriously to keep uh, good for any length of time knows that that's not possible. We can't keep the law, we fall short. And that, says Paul, is exactly what the law was for. It was there to show us that. So first of all, what is the law for? Three points this morning, our first one. The law revealed us as sinners. Have a look again at verses 19 and 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The first part of Paul's answer, why, why is the law there, is that it was added because of sin. More specifically, it was added because of transgression. Now sin, if you like, in the Bible is rebellion in general. Transgression is actually breaking a law. It's a slightly different word. 
It was put in place for transgression. To restrain it, yes, but mostly to reveal it. The law reveals our sin clearly by making it transgression. Imagine, for example, a child is banging their hand on the table. There's that glint in their eye. You suspect that they're doing it to annoy you. I'm, I'm, I've been in this situation, if nobody else has. So you tell them to stop banging on the table. And the child looks at you. And then they carry on banging on the table. What have you done there? Well, you've moved them from sin into outright transgression. You're actually more rightly annoyed at them than you were before, because actually now you've told them not to and they've still done it. That's what the law does. It makes sin crystal clear. It makes it into transgression that you can see. You see, laws don't make people better. They just allow for the punishment of people who break them. If laws could make people better, then don't you think the governments would just pass them? That would be the time, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, we'll just make good people by passing the law. But you can't legislate goodness. There's no law that makes people better. The law, do not steal, does not in itself stop people stealing. The threat of punishment for breaking that law might do that. And in that sense, it does restrain sin. But it doesn't actually change the person. Once the threat goes, or they think they can get away with it, people act out what their hearts wanted to do all the time. You don't need to look any further than shops in cities in the past few months if you've uh, seen those things online. Many stores have said that they won't prosecute or even challenge thefts uh, below a certain amount. And the result is that people are going in and just taking things uh, from shops in certain cities. Now that action is still illegal, but because there's no punishment, it's sort of turned into a free-for-all in some places. You see, the law really acts like a set of scales at Slimming World. There are other weight loss programs available. Um, but scales, if you think about it, they don't actually make you lose weight, do they? They don't lose you the weight. They can, all they can really do is tell you how overweight you are. They can't actually make you slimmer. Or to use the biblical image from the book of James, the law is like a mirror. A mirror can't remove blemishes. All it can do is show them up as you look at them. But of course, just because scales can't lose your weight and mirrors can't remove your blemishes, that doesn't mean they don't have a role to play. In fact, the law is there to do precisely that. To show us our shortcomings. To show us our big problem. The law is a bit like a bulldozer, clearing away any pride or attempt at self-righteousness. The law shows us that we can't be righteous by ourselves. So the law is not some big mistake by God. It wasn't a wrong turn in salvation history. It was there to prepare us for Christ by making it crystal clear that we are sinners and that that needs dealing with. The one who would deal with it is that offspring mentioned in verse 19, who we saw last week is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He comes in to deal with transgressions, to make an end of sin. And if he is the one who does that, then why would we follow the system that only leads up to him coming? 
Why carry on with Advent when Christmas is here? Other than to keep getting chocolates from your Advent calendar, I think that would be what most people would do. But it doesn't make sense, does it? Once the fulfilment is there, once it's dealt with, if the law was for transgressions, well, if we've come to Christ, then our transgressions are dealt with. They were dealt with on the cross. So why go back to what was there before? And Christ dealt with them directly. God himself came down and did this. And uh, Paul's point here in verse 18 is that, uh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 19, is that we can't, you can't say the same of the law. The law, we're told, was given by God to angels who passed it on to Moses, who passed it on to the people. It was not God dealing directly with the problem. If you think about it, it wasn't direct at all. It was sort of several stages removed. If the by angels thing is flummoxing you, it's probably referring to the angel of the Lord who mediates God's presence. If you want to look at that in your own time, Acts chapter 7, 53, Hebrews 2, verse 2 for more details. But a way, uh, the angel of the Lord was a way of meeting God but surviving that experience. The angel mediates God to the mediator Moses who mediates the message to the people. Not very direct at all, is it? But God isn't like that. God is one, it tells us in verse 20. God acts as one. So it doesn't really fit the character of God to act so indirectly. Think about it, when we meet Jesus, we meet God. To be indwelt by the Spirit is to be indwelt by God, they're direct things. God made personal promises to Abraham. That's very direct, isn't it? It's not that sort of several stages removed. But the law here, it says, has a different character. Right from the beginning, it was indirect. So the old law then has an inferior character to the promises. It's not as good as what we've got in Christ. If you don't believe me, read the whole of Hebrews. That will tell you. It was a temporary measure until righteousness by faith was revealed. And as a temporary measure, it's a literal dead end. Does that mean then, though, that the law is bad and against God's big plan? No, not at all. But God's big plan was that this would point us to another direction, would point us down the other road, as we see in our second point. The law imprisoned us like slaves. The law, oh, let me read to you 21 to uh, 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The point here is that the law doesn't give life. That's not what it's for. But verse 21 always reminds me of that old Carlsberg advert. I don't know if you remember it. You know, Carlsberg don't do parties, flatmates or whatever, but if they did, they'd probably be the best in the world. No, remember that? No, lots of blank face. Some of you remember it, I'm sure. 
Well, the law doesn't do life. But if it did, then righteousness would be by this law. That's what he's saying. The law's not bad. It's just not there to bring you spiritual life. That's not its job. It's like complaining that a corkscrew is no good for opening your post. It's just not what it was designed for. What was it designed for? We were told here it was designed almost as a cage, a prison. It was designed to keep us captive, under law, under sin, and as such to make us cry out for rescue. The law is like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, a harsh taskmaster, unforgiving, keeping the people in bondage, awaiting rescue from the Redeemer, crying out to God to hear their pleas. It was designed as a, as a guardian, a schoolmaster, a tutor, a disciplinarian, a childminder, a governess. All those words are in different translations to try and get across the idea of this word. The ancient Roman and Greek world had this servant who would be used by families to bring up their children. That was the word used here for this servant. I think probably in our sort of culture and experience, the closest is probably uh, a sort of Victorian governess. A stern Mary Poppins, without all the chim-chiminies and dancing penguins. That's really, I think, the idea. Who delivers more smacks than spoonfuls of sugar. But a governess stood in place of the parents to administer discipline to the children, and they prepared them for adulthood. They were a bit like a full-time babysitter until the children came of age. And as with a cage, you couldn't simply decide to leave your governess. If you tried to get out of the window, you'd be punished. You were stuck with your governess guardian until you came of age. Well, that is what the law was and is. It was there to be in charge of them until Christ came. It was there to prepare them for Christ's coming by teaching them right from wrong. So that they might see the need for faith in Christ when he arrived. So that he might redeem them, free them from their imprisonment under sin and under the law. It's telling, by the way, that the only other time that Paul uses this word imprisoned is in Romans 11. He says that but God has consigned that same word all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. It's that same sort of idea, uh, in order that he might have mercy. And to do that, we learn here, he uses the law. The law as our captor, as our guardian governance. But Paul's point throughout is that we are no longer enslaved to sin and the law. We're no longer under its guardianship. We've grown out of it, if you like, now that Christ has come. So why go back to it? Why put yourself back under a guardian or governess now that you've grown up? I never had a governess. That might not surprise you. Uh, or even a nanny. Uh, but I did have a babysitter. Her name was Nicola. Uh, she was the daughter of my next-door neighbour. She introduced me and my sister to Cheesy Pop. I don't know whether that's something to applaud her for or to blame her for uh, all these years later, uh, but that was her. It would be like me thinking now, okay, Caroline and the kids, uh, they're out tonight. I know, I know what I need to do. I need to call up Nicola because she needs to come and look after me. I mean, could you imagine the phone call? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, come over and uh, look after your kids. That's what you're saying? Uh, no, 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 come out over and look after me. 
You? You're a grown man. Your time of needing a babysitter is long gone. But that's what the Galatians are doing, says Paul. They want the law to babysit them. Or to think of the other imagery that Paul uses here, imprisonment. Could you imagine a former prisoner calling up a prison and asking if he can go back and stay in his old cell? Maybe even bring some of his friends who've never been to prison. It'd be madness, wouldn't it? Actually, we say that. But so often in a roundabout way, that's what happens, isn't it? Prisoners become accustomed to life in prison. Uh, when they leave, they re-offend. Because actually, they just don't know another way of life. Prison is familiar. Real life is alien and scary and requires responsibility. I wonder whether that is sometimes why Christians fall into this trap, especially those from very strict backgrounds. An off-wall life feels comfortable, almost. It's clear order, it's firm boundaries, it's opportunity for moral superiority over others. It's so obvious what you should do and what others should do. But so often that lifestyle lacks the one thing that the law should have. Paul will go on to say in Galatians 5, uh, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. As a path to godliness, truly loving your neighbour is hard, actually, isn't it? Really loving your neighbour. Whereas not eating shellfish or a short operation or three festivals a year, that in some ways sounds quite easy. A tick list is often easier than getting to know people and loving people and investing in their lives. The law, though, is not a tick list. It's a charge sheet. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Under the law, we can only have condemnation. We're kept prisoner by it. We're kept minors under the dominance of a guardian. But, says Paul, God has done something huge. He has done something to take us out of the supervision of our old guardian and bring us into new life, a new relationship with him. He has made us sons. And that's our final point. Christ has made us sons. Have a look at verses 26 to 29. For in Christ... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Christ, God has made us sons of God. He's taken us from minors to being full-blown sons. He's taken us from prisoners to being cherished children. How? He's put us in Christ. Now, if you've been here in this series so far, we keep coming back to this. I've got a diagram I used a few years ago to just basically illustrate what he's talking about here. He's put us in Christ. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. When we put our trust in Jesus, God places us by his spirit in Christ. It's like we've been subsumed by him, surrounded by him, submersed in him. That's really what verse 27 is getting at. 
The word baptize means to submerge, to dunk, to immerse. Here it's not so much picturing our water baptism as it's picturing what that water baptism signifies. Water baptism signifies our union with Christ, our dying with him and our rising with him. Paul is saying that when you were submerged into Christ, you came out with him on. You're now encased in Christ. You're wearing him. It's similar to what Paul said in the last chapter of himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's now subsumed in Christ, covered by him. What's that mean? What that means for him is that what is true for Christ is true for him. What's true for Christ is true for all believers. We're all sons of God because Christ is the son of God and we are in him. So we're all sons of God, whether men or women. All of us are sons and heirs. Christ is the son of God, so all in him are sons of God. We're not sons of God independently of Christ, like we're sort of rival sons, you see that a lot in the Bible. But in Christ we're adopted in him. And here we're true sons. And true sons are no longer under guardians. We're no longer treated as minors, but as sons and heirs. He's going to develop this in the next chapter. But we enjoy the privileges of sons, of heirs. And there are three big implications that he picks out for the Galatians and for us in light of this wonderful truth. Firstly, the Old Testament law belongs to the Old Testament. We no longer need our old guardian, is what the point is making all the way, because we're sons. However, big caveat, because it needs to be said in our context, our old guardian was employed by our father not by our enemy. The values that our guardian taught us are still our father's values. We're not to forget what our guardian instilled in us. It's just that the guardian is no longer in charge. What I mean by that practically is that we can still learn from the Old Testament law. It was given for our instruction. We can still do series on Old Testament books. As we said before, we've looked at those laws in Exodus and Leviticus. What we mustn't do is direct, apply them directly to ourselves without understanding them first through Christ. Take circumcision, for example, the presenting issue with the Galatians. In the Old Testament, it sounds like it's an everlasting ordinance. It was linked with the covenant with Abraham first before it was in the covenant with Moses. And we said last week, the covenant with Abraham stands. God said to Abraham in uh, Genesis 17, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So if that's the case, why don't we need to be circumcised? Well, circumcision was a sign, a promise of the offspring to come from Abraham's line. That's why it was done on the organ linked with Abraham's seed and only down the male line. It found its fulfilment in Christ, the offspring, and is no longer needed because actually the one that it was looking forward to has come. But it's also in the law of Moses. 
So how does that work? Well, firstly, Christ fulfilled it in himself. He met that righteous requirement. And in him, we have met that righteous requirement too. In Christ, all believers are circumcised. So Colossians uh, chapter 2, 11, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What is true for Christ is true for us. For those in Christ, whether men or women, we're all circumcised in him. He's met the requirement of the law for us. But secondly, as you see in that verse there, it now applies to us spiritually. As I said before, we don't ditch the law, but we understand it in the light of Christ. We don't need the physical circumcision anymore. Christ has fulfilled that. But we do need what it pointed to. Again, the Old Testament was clear about this, what it was really about. It was actually about our hearts. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That's the circumcision that leads to life. Not the one done by the hands of men, but the one done by God himself, spiritually causing us to love him with all our hearts. And that continues throughout all generations. That's the circumcision that we need. So the old law belongs to the Old Testament, but we can still learn from it. The second implication for us in the Galatians we see in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we are all clothed in Christ, then the old divisions no longer apply. We cannot have the situation that we saw back in chapter 2 of Galatians, where there was one table over here for one group, and one table over there for another. Where one group excluded the other group. Because actually, all of us stand equal in Christ. Now that doesn't mean all distinctions break down, but all division breaks down. Paul writes in his other letters specific instructions to the groups that we have mentioned here. Slaves and masters in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. Men and women in 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5. To some degree, Jew and Gentile in Romans 14 and 15. So it's not that these distinctions break down entirely, but they no longer become grounds to discriminate or divide. We don't have to cease being men or women when we come to Christ. We don't have to cease being our different nationalities, but really our citizenship is in heaven. The slave in those days didn't have to buy his freedom before he could come to Christ. Christ accepts all, and all are one body in Christ. All wear Christ equally, and all are seen as equally righteous. All come by faith alone to the Father alone, or, or, or the Father in one way. So for us in Otley, we cannot let old divisions divide us. We need to be a church where all in Christ are welcomed and loved, no matter what their racial background, no matter whether they're male or female, no matter what their social status is. We need to be welcoming to the unbelieving world as well. But Paul's emphasis here is that those who are in Christ are one. And we welcome one another. We don't divide 
with one another. God has made us one. And what God has joined together, let no man separate, to quote another service. Final implication for us and the Galatians. All believers are off, uh, Abraham's offspring in Christ. Have a look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Last week we read this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ, we saw last week, is the offspring of Abraham. The Israelites were a partial fulfilment of that, but Christ was the final fulfilment. If that's new or controversial to you, please go back and listen to last week's talk. The point is, though, if Christ is the offspring of Abraham, then all who are in Christ are offspring of Abraham in him. They are heirs of the inheritance due to Abraham according to the promises God made to him. The promises that we're hearing about in the kids' talk. The blessing promised to Abraham is the blessing that believers receive. He already said that back in verse 14. So if you seek to be closer to Abraham, if you seek to be heirs to his promises, don't go to the law, says Paul, go to Christ. Because if you are Christ, if you belong to him, then you're truly Abraham's offspring. If Christ is the Son of God, remember, then so are you. If Christ is the offspring of Abraham, then so are you. But what would it mean to be heirs of Abraham's promises? Does it mean I have a plot of land in Israel due to me? No. As we said last week, those three big promises, people, land and blessing, were always much bigger. The great nation, uncountable, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Well, it looks fulfilled in 1 Kings. So 1 Kings uh, 4, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. But we see it ultimately and finally fulfilled in Revelation, when all the offspring of Abraham are included. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. It's much bigger, isn't it? The land we said much week, last week is much bigger a promise than just Canaan. Summing it up in uh, Romans 4, Paul writes this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. The world is much bigger than Canaan. In Hebrews we're told that Christ was appointed heir of all things and we are co-heirs with Christ. One day we will reign over this new world with Christ. The blessing promised to Abraham belongs to Christ too and it comes to us in him. And we are blessed now even beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. We sang part of it earlier. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What we sang earlier, those blessings included adoption, redemption, forgiveness, grace, insight into his will, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's just one passage. All to the praise of his glorious grace. All through faith in Christ. We have been made sons of God. 
heirs to the promises through faith, says Paul. So why go anywhere else? Why search for other things when we have all, all we need in Christ? Why move away from faith when faith in Christ brings us all the good things that God has purposed for our world? Why head down a dead-end road that leads to nowhere? Those who've been down it know it, don't we? In some senses, it's easier for us to see just what a dead-end it is. People like the Apostle Paul in his life as a Pharisee. People like Martin Luther in his life as a monk. The law as a means of righteousness is a dead-end, says Paul. Don't go down there. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that you're heading down the road of legalism and law. Well, listen to Paul here. Don't go back into prison. Don't go back to the guardian governess you grew out of a long time ago. Don't go back to something that can't bring you life. Come instead to Christ. Christ who has made us sons and heirs, co-heirs with him of all the blessings promised to Abraham by faith. Who has brought us to the blessings that God has promised as he remakes this world. So don't head down a road to nowhere. Turn away from your works, good or bad, for your righteousness, and come to Christ. Let's pray that God will give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he fulfilled all those amazing promises and brings them to us. Father, help us not to go down a dead-end road. Father, help us not to go down a road that where we think we're earning our own righteousness or our own standing before you. But help us to trust in Christ alone for our right standing with you and enjoy all the wonderful blessings that he brings to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.